We're going to be in uh, Psalm 78 today. Uh, If you have Bibles, just for a few minutes together, we'll be in Psalm 78, verses 1 through 8. Uh, If you were using one of those black hardcover Bibles that's under your seat, uh, that's page 488 in those Bibles. Uh, One of the things I really do love about our church is that we do have people across the age and life stage spectrum. And, And as a pastor, I don't ever want to take that for for granted. Uh, I was with, uh, this past week, a handful of church planters who have, all, who have all started at a brand new church somewhere in the last three to ten years. And as I listen to them talk about some of the unique challenges they face, a lot of them have exclusively 20-somethings and 30-somethings in their church. And as I listen to them talk about the problems that they face when there's only 20 and 30-somethings in, in a church family, I find myself really being grateful to God and thanking God that we have people really that span the generations from birth to the the mid-80s in this room. But the important question that comes next for me in my mind is, so, well, well, how do we steward that well? You know, it's one thing to just rejoice in that, to be excited that God has brought together a group of people in in this age range. It's another thing, though, to think about, how do we faithfully steward that? How do we follow Jesus together from when we're born to when we die as a, as a community of people? And there would be a lot of ways we can answer that question. Uh, there's a lot of work for us to do in, in the days ahead and the years ahead to be good stewards of that. But one of the big things that really has been on my heart in recent months has been how do we better serve the coming generation, the next generation? And, and that specifically means, in my mind, the, the young lives in our midst, birth through, through student age, through, through end of high school years. Uh, sometimes uh, in church plants, which we are, we're about four years old now, uh, it can feel like we do real church together as adults, quote-unquote real church, and that we just need to find some kind of child care or some kind of outsourcing for our kids so we can do the real church together as adults, and no one's more guilty of that at times than, than I am. But what that fails to appreciate is that the youngest person in our church, right, the, the youngest soul, the youngest life in our church, that's a fellow image bearer of God with us. Uh, That's a fellow human being with a deep need to know God and a deep need to experience love and compassion and grace in light of the finished work of Jesus. So for just these few minutes this morning, I want to spend some time in Psalm 78 just considering the importance of telling the coming generation. Uh, Psalm 78, it's the second longest psalm that we have in our Bibles. So rather than study the whole thing, Uh, We're just going to look at the first eight verses. These first eight verses really give us a purpose statement for what is included in the rest uh, of the psalm. And they give us a really good paradigm for what it it entails to tell the coming generation. So let me read those first eight verses of Psalm 78. You can follow along with me. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Things that we have heard and known, that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach, the next, teach, to, the next gen, to, teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. This is God's word. 
Let me just pray for us this morning. God, we pray that just in the, in the few moments we have together in, in Psalm 78 today, that you would uh, either remind us of or teach us or renew us in a deep passion uh, to tell the coming generation, that we would, that we would own the, the responsibility that we have uh, as parents, for those of us who are parents, as a church body for all of us. We pray all this in your name. Amen. So as we talk about telling the coming generation, I'm going to use the word discipleship uh, a fair amount. Uh, discipleship, when I say that, what I mean is uh, it's a process of caring for and equipping other people as they first become part of the people of God and then as they are continually formed into and as the people of God. And so discipleship is really a, a very holistic process. We sometimes think of it just as like knowledge transfer or telling the coming generation just being like, I have things in my mind, I need to pass them along to you. But it's a lot more holistic than that. It includes the totality of who we are. It's a head and a heart and a hands pursuit. This is something we'll revisit you know, many times in, in the days ahead. But just for these few minutes, uh, the paradigm that we see here in Psalm 78 that I want us to look at in part, uh, in brief, it has three parts. Uh, the venue for discipleship, the content of discipleship, and the aim of discipleship. The venue, the content, and the aim. So first, let's talk about the venue for discipleship. And what we see here in Psalm 78 is that the central venue, the primary venue for discipleship is the family. The psalmist here speaks of hearing about the things of God from fathers, and fathers passing them on to their children, and then, a, and then another generation of those kids growing up, becoming adults, and telling their children. And it's this pattern that we see not only in Psalm 78, but really throughout Scripture of generational family discipleship. One generation commends the works of God to another generation. So if when you hear the word discipleship, you think of a, a college campus ministry, you think of key relationships with other people in the church, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, Those are really important and good venues for discipleship. But what we see in Scripture is that the primary venue for discipleship, in the way that God has designed and orchestrated things, it's not a campus ministry, it's not key relationships with people in the local church, it's the family. Another common misconception I think that we carry around when we consider uh, discipleship is that we get to choose whether or not we're going to disciple other people. Because the reality is we don't have a choice. We're going to do that. Right now, whatever stage of life you're in, you are discipling people, and you have been for years. So if you're a parent especially, whether it's been a conscious or or an unconscious pursuit of yours, you've been the primary means of discipleship in the lives of your kids. And I don't think I'm telling you anything that you don't know when I say that, but you've taught your kids how to understand the world. Uh, you've taught your kids how to understand and handle situations that arise and, and what relationships are meant to look like and how to have fun and how to handle hardship. You've given them really the primary grid from which to view and understand the world. And I don't say that to, to crush you or to guilt you. I, I want to lay before us this morning again, for most of us, uh, just the responsibility that is put to us uh, as those who disciple people, particularly through this venue of family. Now let me speak for just a moment to to those of you in the room who are not married and don't have kids at present. Um, There's a lot for you here, too, and I would hope that that you don't think about things like generational family discipleship and kind of say, maybe someday I'll consider that and think about those things. Regardless of if we ever uh, have kids of our own, all of us are part of a family. We come from a family. 
And so as we consider that God's primary venue for discipleship is the family, there's always an opportunity for us to reflect and then both rejoice and lament in the foundation that's been laid for us. And depending on your life and your particular circumstances and scenario, you might have a lot to rejoice about there. Your family may have done a great job giving you good grid, a good grid to understand the world through and, and helping you how, how navigate through all kinds of situations you might face in your life. Others of us will lament a lot. There's a lot of things that weren't healthy or weren't good about your family life growing up. Now, moreover, whether or not you get married, whether or not you have kids, uh, you will replicate your life into the lives of anybody that you have the opportunity to influence. It's just part of how we're wired as people. We replicate our lives consciously or subconsciously into the lives of others. And so my humble plea for any of you who don't currently have kids, um, who aren't married, whether or not that's on your radar for the future or not, my plea to you is not to think about this as like a someday or maybe kind of thing, but really that, that yesterday was not too soon to start thinking about and cultivating the kinds of things you'd want to replicate into the lives of other people. Now, as it pertains to us as, as a church, uh, what we want to do when we, when we consider that the primary venue for discipleship is the family, we want to hold high that design of God. And we want to support and equip all of you who are parents or will become parents to be that primary venue, that primary means of, God's, of discipleship for your kids. And so last week you heard um, Greg and Jen Lowe up here talking about the Shepherding a Child's Heart seminar. We offer things like that because we want to do this well. We want to set you up as parents well to disciple your kids. And you'll see in the bulletin today and in the weekly email this week, we're putting a resource in your hands called a Family Discipleship Guide. Uh, we didn't put this together ourselves. This came from a church called the Village Church, which we're in the, the same uh, church planting network with called the Acts 29 Network. That's a fantastic resource that goes a lot more in depth than I'm able to this morning. And it helps you really think through uh, different rhythms of how you can talk to your kids and different truths about God that you can learn yourself and then convey to your kids and, and how to think about milestones in your kids' lives and how you can celebrate with them as they come to learn more about who, who God is. So just as a really practical next step, I would encourage you to go to that URL. It's in your bulletin. It'll be in the weekly email this week. Go to that Download that family discipleship guide and spend some time working through that. If you're married, do that together with your, with your spouse. Uh, that's something that Shay and I are excited to, to be doing together as we just consider what it looks like for our girls to grow up in these markers and key moments uh, in their lives. And we want to offer resources and seminars and things like that really to set you up well to be this primary venue in your family. So that's the venue. Uh, second, what's the content of discipleship, right? If we, get, if we get this idea, okay, we're supposed to tell the coming generation, the family's going to be the primary venue for that. What exactly is it that we're supposed to tell the coming generation? What are we supposed to pass along? And the answer is, we're supposed to pass along God's revelation of himself. So God is a God who reveals himself. He makes himself known to his people. And the means by which he does that, they vary. Uh, sometimes he does that through what he's created, how he sustains and cares for that creation. He also reveals himself very specifically through words given to the patriarchs, given to the prophets, given to the apostles. And the psalmist here includes a few examples of that in these verses. Verse 5 says that God established a testimony in Jacob. So God has chosen this group of people for himself and through them is going to bless all the nations of the earth. That's going to be their identity, that's going to be their story, and they're going to be the means that God reveals himself to the rest of the world. 
Verse 5 also says that God appointed a law in Israel. And we read in the Old Testament that through Moses specifically, God reveals his character and he reveals his holiness. He reveals what it looks like to live as God's people in the world. And then in verse 4, it says that uh, God's glorious deeds and his might and the wonders that he has done, that he's revealed himself through those things. And really, the rest of this long psalm is filled with specific examples of these deeds and these wonders. Sometimes they're miraculous, uh, like the parting of the Red Sea and the Israelites walking across on dry land. Sometimes they're just really the brilliance of how he orchestrates the unfolding of history. All of these things are different forms of God revealing himself. And that's meant to be the content of our discipleship. Now for us, nearly 3,000 years after this psalm was written, we have our Bibles, right? We have Holy Scripture, which apart from the person and work of Jesus himself, we see as the highest and clearest revelation of God. So think about that for, think about the opportunity and really think about the luxury that you and I have when it comes to this content of discipleship. When, when this psalm was written, uh, telling the coming generation was done all through oral history. So the luxury of having a Bible, let alone the luxury of being able to, to read the Bible, to have one in your own home and look at portions of it every single day, that's a luxury that's not even 500 years old. Let alone the luxury of just the last couple years of getting to carry it around on a device that's this size in your pocket that also has a lot of other resources available to you to help you understand and to interpret and pass along what you read. So, so you and I have an opportunity to recognize God's revelation, to remember it, to pass it along in a way that really is unheard of and unprecedented in the history of the world. But as it often does, luxury breeds laziness. Does it not? Luxury makes us lazy. And we just figure, well, now that all this is available, everyone, whether it be our kids, our neighbors, our coworkers, they can all read this stuff for themselves. They've got access to it. They can make up their minds for themselves. What difference, we might find ourselves thinking, what difference does it make if I own this call and this stewardship to tell the coming generation? And I would just propose this morning, it makes a huge difference. Because really, in every generation, our natural tendency and our trajectory is not toward faithfulness to the revelation of God. Our natural trajectory in every era is to accept whatever is palatable and to reject whatever is not palatable. And that changes in every generation. That kind, the, the kind of shift then that can happen over the course of a generation or two is incredible. And we could look at a lot of examples from history, so just one brief one. In the early 20th century, there's a big movement around what was called the, the social gospel. And at its root is really just the application of Christian ethics to social problems. And there's a lot of good that can come from taking a Christian ethic perspective and applying that to social problems. A lot of good can come from that. What was really a, a skew in the social gospel movement was that it placed an emphasis on humanity's ability to solve evils in the world just by their effort. Like if we just have the right principles and enough human, human effort and, and elbow grease, we can, we can solve all the evil and rid the world of evil. Generation later, by the mid-20th century, the predominant message in the church was to not focus so much on the person and the work of Jesus, but really his moral and his character attributes. So there would still be references to Jesus, but it was really almost exclusively as, a, as an example, as a moral example, and not as Savior, not as Lord. And one person who observed this was actually the German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer came over to the U.S. to visit, and on one of his visits he wrote this. In New York, 
They preach about virtually everything. Only one thing is not addressed or is addressed so rarely that I have as yet been unable to hear it. Namely, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the cross, sin and forgiveness, death and life. Now fast forward another generation from there to the 60s and 70s. Now you've got all kinds of groups emerging that seek to emulate the character and the morality of Jesus without any kind of faith in him. So there's a predominant message that shows up that says, it's not really what you believe that matters, it's just how you live your life. Fast forward another generation or two to today, the latest research tells us that the vast majority of Americans see self-fulfillment as the highest measure of moral good. That's 100 years, and that's the kind of shift that can happen in 100 years. See, that the content of discipleship has to be God's revelation of himself. And that means for us that we can't separate the character and the attributes of God from the person and work of Jesus in the history of the world. Both of that, all of that, is part of God's revelation. So we need to tell the coming generation all of that. Because without this as the content of our discipleship, we're going to settle for self-fulfillment when actually what we're called to and invited into is freedom from the dominion of darkness and entrance into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. So if that's the content, we've talked about the venue of discipleship. Lastly, let's talk about the aim of discipleship. And really, there, there's a huge danger that lurks in the background anytime we talk about discipleship or telling the coming generation. And it has to do with what we're aiming for. Most specifically, it's the danger that we get caught up in aiming for the outward external result and looking at that first and foremost, right? We, we, we get concerned that, that our kids or whoever we're trying to disciple looks this way, behaves this way, handles situations this way, lives this way. And all of those things are really, really important in light of the content of discipleship being God's revelation of himself. He has a lot to say about how we live our lives and what our lives should look like. It's just that all of those external aspects of discipleship are meant to flow from one primary aim. What is that aim? Verse 7, so that they should set their hope in God. We tell the next generation so that they should set their hope in God, that they should not forget Him and His works. And then, yes, as it says, that we should keep His commandments. But never merely just as an external moral code or external kind of behavior. All of those external means are meant to flow from this primary aim of a hope in God. And here's the great reality and great truth about this. Not only is that the aim of discipleship, that's actually the power for discipleship. And I think that we are, we are kidding ourselves if we don't get overwhelmed and discouraged by the weight of responsibility that this is from time to time. Right? Parents, you feel the weight and responsibility of this in your kids' lives. And if you're uh, even influencing other people that aren't your own kids, you feel the weight and the responsibility of this. And maybe like me, you find yourself asking often, how in the world am I capable of that? Like, how am I capable of the responsibility of telling the coming generation? Like, that the stewardship, that God would put that stewardship uh, on me is a scary thought at times. But here's the mystery and the beauty of this. You can do this, parents and friends, you can do this precisely because you can't do this. Right? It's your own hope in God, which flows from your own desperate need for His rescue and redemption, that gives you the power to tell the coming generation. 
If, if our primary aim of discipleship is that the coming generation sets their hope in God, then your primary role is to display and to demonstrate your own hope in Him and to invite them into that. So far more than your wisdom and far more than your skill at life, it's your dependence that will equip others, that will equip the coming generation to hope in God. It's your dependence that will connect the coming generation to the source of life that is Jesus Christ and His finished work. Discipleship is not about making perfect people or conforming them to this specific uh, formulaic mold. It's about giving them a grid for dependence on and hope in the God who made them, the God who loves them, and the God who forgives them because of the work of, of Jesus. And so, friends, may we be a generation ourselves that hope in God. And through this primary venue of family and through this content of God's revelation for himself, may our hope in God be what we pass along to the coming generation. May we find ourselves steadfast and faithful, as the psalmist says, and may the next generation find themselves as well as we teach them to hope in God. Amen. Let me pray for us. God, would you be our hope? Would you be our hope? Would we be reminded every time that we consider uh, who you are and who we are, would we be reminded of our desperate need for you? That we desperately need you to rescue us, to redeem us, to empower us, to live the life you call us to live. But would our hope in you not only be for our good, would it really be what invites other people and the next generation into their own hope in you? And we pray that, that you would again this morning renew us in this and that you would remind us of the responsibility you've placed on us. And I pray specifically for the parents in here, uh, would you give them strength by your spirit and renewal in their own hope in you this morning that they might pass on that hope to their kids. And then as a church, we might serve the coming generations well. And we pray all of this desperate and hopeful and confident that you will meet us where we are and will give us everything we need to do this. We pray that in your name.